And I'll invite the rest of you to take your Bibles and open them to Acts chapter 21. All right, Acts chapter 21, and I'd like to read a couple of verses here as we begin. Uh, right there in verse 15, Luke says, And after those days we packed and went up to Jerusalem. Also some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us and brought with them a certain nation of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we were to lodge. And when we had come to Jerusalem, the brethren received us gladly. You know, it's interesting here. This is Paul returning to the city of Jerusalem. And I was thinking about it, that the first time that Paul came to Jerusalem as a Christian, he was viewed with a great deal of skepticism by the the brethren, by by the members of the church in Jerusalem. They didn't know whether to embrace him or to avoid him. Because they didn't know whether he wanted to worship with them or arrest them. Now, more than 20 years later, Paul has proven over and over again that he was not the same man that Luke described as breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord back in Acts chapter 9. Paul had suffered terribly for the sake of the gospel, hadn't he? Primarily at the hands of his own Jewish brothers. We don't need to rehearse the whole litany of things, but we know that Paul had been beaten, and on more than one occasion, attempts had been made to kill him. And Paul had suffered terribly. And so, as he made his way back to Jerusalem, and the Holy Spirit continually reminded Paul that when you get to Jerusalem, you're going to face hardship, right? It's going to be difficult. You're going to be arrested. You're going to lose your freedom. You're going to suffer affliction. And so I imagine that Paul came to Jerusalem fully expecting the same kind of reception he'd gotten every other place. And certainly based on what the Spirit had said. But here in verse 17, we see a little bit of a different reception than the first time Paul came to Jerusalem as a Christian. Here, verse 17 says, When he came to Jerusalem, the brethren received us gladly. We've seen this already as we've studied this passage in the first part of chapter 21. But at every stop along this journey that Paul made, going all the way from Greece back to uh, to the land of Israel, the land of Judea, every stop along the way, Paul encountered Christians who extended hospitality and friendship to Paul and to his companions. Last week we studied... Specifically, Paul's journey there from Miletus to Caesarea. And I said this, that the true fellowship and community are found in the submission to the will of God in Christ Jesus. We saw that Christians were enjoying true intimacy and unity because they share a relationship with Jesus Christ and because they are in submission to the will of God. And so Paul, at every stop along the way, has encountered a group of believers who love, and, who love Jesus Christ, just like Paul does. Who are submitted to Christ and the will of God, just like Paul is. And as much as they tried to keep him from going to Jerusalem and didn't want him to face the difficulty, the persecution he would face, he and they were submitted to the will of God. And they recognized that God was taking Paul to Jerusalem. 
But now we follow Paul into the city of Jerusalem. And what we're going to find is that very unity, that very fellowship that the, the Christians have experienced is going to be put to the test. Now, you understand something, and we've, we've talked about this before, but it's very important to understand that the animosity between the Jews and the Gentiles was so deeply rooted in their cultural heritage. And the atmosphere in Jerusalem, when Paul arrived there in the spring, the late spring, or maybe this would probably be summertime of A.D. 57, the atmosphere was electric. The Roman governors, who had been appointed over Judea over the last decade, had often used heavy-handed tactics to maintain control over the region. Resentment uh, on the part of the Jews against the Gentiles was at an all-time high. The Jews in Judea viewed all Gentiles with increasing hostility, and anyone who cooperated with the Gentiles was viewed with suspicion. In A.D. 70, just a little more than a decade after these events, the city of Jerusalem would be the center of, essentially, riots that would break out. Revolt by the Jews as they, as they revolted against the Roman authorities. And that revolt would be handled in an equally heavy-handed way by the Romans. A.D. 70, Roman troops entered the city of Jerusalem, marched into the city, and destroyed it, completely burning down the temple. This was the the era in which Paul returned to Jerusalem. In the midst of all the tension and suspicion and and, and all of the, the conflict that was going on. Now, Paul must have known something about this because Paul said in uh, his letter to the Christians in Rome, In Romans chapter 15, he asked them to pray. He says, strive together with me in prayers to God, that I may be delivered from those in Judea who do not believe, and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints. Paul must have realized as he was going to Jerusalem that he may not be received graciously. That there were those who refused to believe the gospel who were hostile toward him. And that even the brothers in the church, Paul knew, they may not receive this gift in the way in which it's intended. Now we would like to think, at least I would, and I think we all would like to think, that the church is above all of the divisions and prejudices we see in society at large. But I think we know better, don't we? Paul knew better, too. He feared that the Jewish believers wouldn't accept these financial gifts that came from Gentile churches. And so that's why he asked the Romans to pray that God would prepare the hearts of the Jewish Christians so that they would see just how the love of God had shined in the hearts of the Gentiles. Paul was hoping in delivering this gift that this this very tangible expression of love would be seen exactly as that. They would realize this is the Gentile Christians who truly know God in Christ. And they would see them as brothers and would embrace them. Of course, Paul is there with a team of missionaries. 
many of whom were Gentiles from the respective churches. In fact, as far as I know, only one of them was Jewish that we know of, Timothy. And he was half Jewish. The point is that in this entourage that Paul had, he was coming into Jerusalem, into the church, with a mixed group of Jews and Gentiles. And he didn't know what his reception was going to be. But the entire purpose for Paul's journey to Jerusalem was to demonstrate to the Christians there that God had done something in the church that had never been done in the history of the world. You realize that? That God has done something in the church. When He created the church, God did something that had never been done in all the history of the world. I would say it's not just something that hasn't been done. It's something that is impossible and cannot be done apart from God and Christ. And so outside of the church, I don't think it's possible. What, is, what am I talking about? Well, let me illustrate it by reading a portion of Scripture to you. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 14 through 18. Paul talks about this very thing that he is going to Jerusalem for. And here's what he says, For Christ himself has brought peace to us, He united Jews and Gentiles into one people when in his own body on the cross he broke down the wall of hostility that separated us. He did this by ending the system of law with its commandments and regulation. He made peace between Jews and Gentiles by creating in himself one new people from the two groups. Together as one body, Christ reconciled both groups to God by means of his death on the cross. And our hostility toward each other was put to death. He brought this good news of peace to you Gentiles who were far away from him. And peace to the Jews who were near. Now all of us can come to the Father through the same Holy Spirit because of what Christ has done for us. You see what God did when he created the church? He created something new. He took Jews and Gentiles, enemies, men who were hostile toward one another, who had no love for one another because of their, their, their religious heritage and their ethnic heritage. And He joined them together. He broke down the wall of hostility that was between us. And He enabled us to come together in one body to worship one Lord. This is what Paul was doing. This was why Paul went to Jerusalem from those, those Gentile churches in Asia and Greece. He went to Jerusalem to prove this. To show the Jewish Christians that God could take Gentiles and Jews and fuse them together in one unified And so, of course, what did Paul do when he arrived there in Jerusalem? Verse 18 says, On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. When he had greeted them, he told in detail those things which God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified the Lord. This is what Paul did, right? He, Luke doesn't mention it here, though, although this meeting was almost certainly to deliver that financial gift. 
And then, but what Luke focuses on here is Paul's testimony. The testimony of what God had been doing. Paul shared a personal testimony. You know, think about this. Paul has been gone from Jerusalem for about five years. He was in Ephesus for three years. Then he left Ephesus and he went up to Troas in Macedonia. Remember, he was looking for Titus. He didn't meet Titus and he kept, you know, was, was fearing for Titus. And he spent about a year and a half then moving around Macedonia and up into Idumea before he went down to Greece, to Corinth, and he spent three months at Corinth, and now he's traveled back. So almost five years have taken place since Paul was last in Jerusalem. That's a lot of things for him to update them on. And so that's what Paul's doing. He shares his testimony with them and talks about all of the things. Luke says that James was present. This James is, is not James the Apostle, by the way. He's dead. Herod beheaded him way back in, uh, I think it was Acts, or, I think it was chapter 11 or 12. James was put to death. So he's gone. This is James, the brother of Jesus. Oftentimes called James the Just. He didn't call himself that, but other people called him that. And, and he's the one who wrote the book of James in the New Testament. None of the apostles are mentioned here at all. Just the only one mentioned by name is James, and then he says the elders. We suspect the reason that the apostles aren't mentioned is that they're not there. The apostles had all left Jerusalem and they were all fulfilling the commission that Christ had given. They were all traveling all over the world preaching the gospel. In fact, tradition tells us that, that by this time, uh, Thomas, you know, doubting Thomas, we always call him, which is really slanderous, we shouldn't do that. Thomas, was tradition tells us, was in India preaching the gospel. That's a long ways, by the way, from, to travel um, most likely by foot. Maybe on an animal, but I would say probably a good portion of it by foot. Travel from Jerusalem all the way to India, preaching the gospel. But, but that's where they were. The, the apostles are all gone. James, the brother of Jesus, is there. He's pastoring in the church there in Jerusalem. The rest of the elders of the church are there. And Paul and his team are sharing testimony. And so James and the elders listen to the testimony there in verse 19. And their response in verse 20 is to praise God, to glorify God. I, I love it because, of course, you notice what, what it says here, how Luke says. Luke doesn't say, Paul says, hey, let me give you a list of all the things I did. That's not what he says. What he says here in verse 19 is Paul tells them all of the things God had done among the Gentiles through Paul's ministry or through his service. What's, Paul, what, what's he saying? God accomplished the work here. Paul was very careful to put the emphasis on God doing the work. Paul wasn't winning the Gentiles for Christ. God was doing that. Paul says, I'm just the instrument. God worked through me. Over the last five years, God worked through me to plant a church in Ephesus, and the gospel then spread throughout the whole region of Asia from Ephesus. And I preached in Troas, and I preached in Macedonia, and I went up to Edomina, and I wanted to cross into Rome, but... But the believers needed me, so I had to come back. And I went down to Corinth and was straightening things out there. And I got the church on track, and they're growing, and they're doing great. And all those churches all took up a collection because they know how, how, how hard things have been for you. With the famine and poverty and how you've suffered. And Paul says, all of these things, God, God put it in their hearts to want to give to you. God put it in their hearts to, to care for you. 
So that all these Gentile churches who don't know you at all, they've never met you, but they know that the gospel came from you first because it was right here in Jerusalem where all this happened. They all want to do something for you. And so they took collections and they gave the money to me and asked me to bring it to you. And Paul says, I'm doing this because God has done a great work. You see, Paul, is that's the emphasis here. It's all of the glory goes to God. God is the one who did all the work. And the evidence that God was in it, this is really important because you and I know this. We know this to be true. Very little, very little that we do says as much about us as how we handle our pocketbook. Right? Because our money tends to be the most important thing, the most important indication of who we are and what we're all about. Right? Where we invest our money, how we use our money, what we do with our money, how we view money, that typically, like it or not, reveals more about us and what we think is important than anything else. And Paul says, listen, this gift that I'm bringing, this is the evidence. You believers, you Jewish Christians, you know that these Gentiles wouldn't have given two bits for how you're doing if it weren't for Jesus Christ. If it weren't for the fact that they are truly believers, brothers and sisters of ours in Christ. Paul's a Jew, right? He's speaking to his, his fellow Jewish believers. But he's pointing back to the Gentiles and saying, listen, they did this work. They gave this offering. They gave this money. And it's proof. It's evidence that they are not just nice people. They're our brothers and our sisters in Jesus Christ. And Paul says this is the evidence God was at work. That's the testimony that Paul gives. God accomplished the work. And so, Paul is very careful to give God the credit. And the elders of the church here respond appropriately by giving God the glory. By magnifying and praising God. Verse 20, the first part of it tells us that's what they did. They didn't praise Paul. That's good. We don't praise the servant. We praise the Lord who's being served and who empowers our service. That's what we do. So, that's a, a good thing for you to remember too, by the way. Don't praise the servant. Praise the God who did it. It's His work. That's what Paul's doing. That's not a major point here. Let's move on though. The problem and the, the danger here is that the rest of the church in Jerusalem doesn't necessarily have the same perspective on this that James and the elders have. We wish they did. But they don't quite respond the same way, or at least that's the fear. Let's continue on in verse 20. They said to him, you see, brother, how many myriads of Jews there are who have believed. And they are all zealous for the law. But they have been informed about you, that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, saying they ought not to circumcise their children, nor to walk according to the customs. What then? The assembly must certainly meet, for they will hear that you have come. You see, the, the elders respond to Paul, and, and they, they praise God. They're excited about the ministry that God has done. But there's a problem. They're concerned over Paul's presence in Jerusalem because rumors had been spreading about what Paul was teaching in Asia and in Greece. Of course, isn't that, isn't that just so... 
typical of us. You know, it's so easy for us to be suspicious, to be cynical. We were talking about this uh, with the men's Bible study on Tuesday night about the danger of cynicism. Man, we are so cynical sometimes. We just we just jump right to assuming the worst about somebody, don't we? So easily. And of course, gossip just follows on that so quickly. Even if it's just completely rumors, unfounded, no truth to them at all. And that's the situation here. Paul is coming back to Jerusalem and the elders say, Hey, Paul, you've been gone for five years. People have been talking. People have been talking about what you're doing and what you're preaching and and, and I'm sure there were some people that had come back from Asia and Greece who, who had encountered Paul and they come back and they start talking about things and maybe they're disgruntled about something and before long word begins to spread. And in the church of Jerusalem, there's concern. What they're saying here, these rumors, they're spreading. And we don't know who was saying them, by the way. They don't identify for us who was saying these things. But, but what they're saying is that Paul taught the Jews, those who lived outside of Judea, to forsake the Old Testament law. To forsake all of the customs that they've been taught since childhood. Now, the elders here tell us the church in Jerusalem was filled with Jewish believers. I mean, that's what he says. There, there's a whole bunch of Jewish converts. In fact, they encourage Paul to look around. In verse 20, they say, Paul, look around. You see how many myriads the... the uh, the, the, the number here is, is just, uh, they're, they're, the word that you're describing is, is uncountable multitude. Tens of thousands. Okay. And some people have suggested that must be, um, you know, exaggeration. They're, they're, they're not being serious. But if we go back to the earlier chapters, as Luke, as Luke was trying to kind of keep up with the growth of the church, you know, it didn't take long before the church was numbering 5,000 men. That's early chapters in Acts. That's not counting women and children. Now we're 20 years removed from that. We, we could easily be seeing, talking about a church of tens of thousands of here across Judea. Probably not all in the city of Jerusalem, although a good, I'm sure the majority of them. The point here is that they're saying, listen, Paul, the gospel has been very effective here. Paul, many Jews have trusted Christ. The church is growing among the Jews, Paul. I'm sure that on part they wanted their concern in telling Paul this was, Paul, hey, things have been going really well here as far as the gospel is concerned. Yeah, we're suffering and we're having some hardships, and we, but, but the gospel is going out and Jews are trusting Christ and there's, things are happening, Paul. And Paul, this is a good thing. Don't rock the boat. <laughs> They're concerned that Paul's presence might disrupt the growth and the gospel that they have seen. And so I think it's a legitimate concern. I don't think it's a selfish concern. They're concerned about the gospel going out. They're concerned that they continue to see the growth in the church. Here's how Richard Lenski describes all of these Jewish converts. He says here they're zealous for the law. That's what Luke says. Uh, commentator uh, Richard Lenski says this way. He says, They retained their Jewish way of living, circumcised their children, ate kosher, kept the Sabbath, etc. And no one was forbidden to live this way. And that undoubtedly won many converts in the Jewish land. In other words, when people came to Christ in Judea, 
When Jews became Christians and they kept living faithfully as Jews and following the, the, the regulations, but they were Christians, it actually, it actually helped them to reach their Jewish neighbor. Well, that's not really a surprise, is it? I mean, their Jewish neighbor who really thought those things were really important... And when his Christian friend was doing, you know, going to the temple with him and going, uh, you know, honoring the Sabbath and was, was being careful about, about what he ate and was, was continuing to teach his children the law, is that a bad thing? Is he was teaching their children to obey the Word of God and, I mean, living a disciplined life? And what did it do? It was attractive to the neighbors. It began to, the gospel was spreading more. Now, how did the apostles view those things? Well, along with Paul, Lenski says they regarded these as matters of indifference. The only time these issues became dangerous, the only time that the, that the Old Testament law was dangerous, was when they regarded it as necessary for salvation. But as long as they understood, they're not doing this because it saves them. They're not doing this to give them standing before God. They're doing this... Because they think it's a good way to live and because it's their heritage. There's nothing wrong with that. These were genuine Christians who showed their devotion to God by continuing to live according to the word of the Old Testament. And so this was not a question of the gospel. The church had already established that. Okay? Back in Acts chapter 15, they had already dealt with the issue of the relationship of Old Testament Judaism to the gospel. And they said there was nothing wrong with Jews continuing to live as faithful Jews. As long as they were trusting in Christ rather than their law keeping for salvation. Okay? So there was nothing wrong with them continuing to live good moral lives and following the word of God and being disciplined and careful in what they ate and, and all of the things of their cultural heritage. None of those things were inherently sinful and wrong. As long as they understood that those things didn't save them. As long as they understood that they were saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone, then their cultural heritage could remain intact, you see. They don't have to turn they don't have to jettison that. The other issue was this they also couldn't compel the Gentile Christians to live as Jews. See? Back in Acts 15, they said that you can't compel the Gentiles who don't share your cultural heritage to conform to your, your Jewish customs. Because what you're doing then is you're telling the Gentiles you can only be a Christian if you take Jesus Christ plus Jewishness. Okay? And that's wrong. See, now we're corrupting the gospel. And so this was what the church had decided all the way back in Acts 15. James was there, by the way. So was Paul in that meeting. Part of that original decision. And, and in verse 25 here, he... They, they remind Paul of this. He says, but concerning the Gentiles who believe, we have written and decided that they should observe no such thing. In other words, they don't have to be circumcised. They don't have to keep the law. They don't have to keep the Sabbath. They don't have to eat kosher. Here's what he says. Except that they should keep themselves from things offered to idols, from blood, from things strangled, and from sexual immorality. And we treated all that stuff before. I'm not going to go back into that again. They only asked the Gentiles to be considerate of their Jewish brothers and sisters and to avoid the things that would be especially problematic for the Jewish Christians. 
What we need to understand, though, is there's no evidence that Paul ever taught a Jew to turn his back on his cultural heritage. Never told a Jew, you've got to stop being a Jew if you want to be a Christian. Never did that. There's no indication that Paul ever did that. But that's the accusation that's being made. Paul said, no, 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 if you're going to be a Christian, you've got to jettison all those Jewish practices. That's a lie. It's not true. And so the church elders, and I think the church elders knew that. I think the, the, the evidence from the passage here is that they approached Paul. They didn't believe these things. They knew these things weren't true. But they said, there are some people who do believe them, Paul. And this could be a problem. They didn't believe it. But their concern was for those people in the church who were still spreading these rumors and for those people who would be misled by them. Their concern, if you want to put it this way, was for the unity of the church. Because they knew that that unity could be undermined by speculation, by rumors, by gossip. And so they set out a plan. They said, Paul, we got a plan to solve this. We can prevent this issue from becoming a source of division. Look at what they suggested, verse 23. Therefore, do what we tell you. We have four men who have taken a vow. Take them and be purified with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads and that all may know that those things of which they were informed concerning you are nothing, but that you yourself also walk orderly and keep the law. And look down at verse 26. Then Paul took the men the next day, having been purified with them, entered the temple to announce the expiration of the days of purification, at which time an offering should be made for each one of them. They told, this is what happened. They told Paul that there were four men in the church who had taken a vow. And they were preparing to undergo the final week of purification. That is, they were going to complete the vow this week. And the elders suggested to Paul that he should join these men. And he should undergo his own ritual purification along with them, and then he should pay for the completion of their vows. Now, why would Paul need to undergo ritual purification himself? Well, because he just spent the last five years in Gentile lands. So as a Jew, coming back and wanting to enter into the temple to worship, he had to undergo a purification process. Because the assumption was that in his contact with the Gentiles, he had become ritually impure. I don't want to get into all the details of that. It's, there's a whole lot of rabbit trails we could chase there. Okay, Some other time we discuss that. The point here is, that was pretty much a reasonable request and expectation on the part of Paul. Hey, if you're going to go into the temple... And Paul knew this. He's a good Jew. He understands that he grew up with this. So he knows. Okay, before I go in there, I, um, let me give you an illustration of it. In a, not completely comparable, but kind of. I, I, I've been in Israel and... and um, when we were there, um, we were there on the Temple Mount, which is where the temple used to be located. There's a temple there now. Um, there's, a, there's a Muslim mosque there. Okay. Uh, there's a really beautiful one called the Dome of the Rock. And a beautiful gold leaf dome. and brilliant. Anywhere, almost anywhere in the city of Jerusalem you can see it. it you know, any picture you see of Jerusalem, you always see this gold dome. That's it. Okay, right there in the middle. And, uh, but before you go into the mosque, you have to take off your shoes. And you... When you think about it, it's, you know, if you're a germaphobe, it's a little tough because you take off your shoes and you walk in your stocking feet on rugs that have all been laid down and you have no idea like how long they've been there or how many thousands of people have walked on those rugs before you, also in their stocking feet. Like you just, you just kind of just do it, right? 
But, but listen, is it, is it my custom? No. But I could go through that custom and take my shoes off and do that custom. It's not, it, it's not that big of a deal. And so in the sense, Paul coming back, going through the ritual cleansing, kind of the same idea. It's, again, okay, I'm going to join in here. I'm going to go to the temple. I'm going to fellowship. This is what's expected. If I'm going to go to the temple, okay, I'll do it. Right? No problem. But the whole thing with paying the vow, this is where it gets really interesting because that's kind of an unusual request. They say that there were four men who were in the church who had taken a vow. This vow, by the way, would be the Nazarite vow. If you want, you can jot, down, jot this down. You can go back to Numbers chapter 6 and read about the Nazarite vow in verses 1 through 21 of Numbers chapter 6. That's the passage that regulates a Nazarite vow. We're not going to do that this morning. We do not have time. But the interesting thing when you read about that is that, that at the end of the Nazarite vow, when the vow was completed, there were a whole series of sacrifices that had to be offered. Okay? This was the sacrifices that had to be made. They had to, they had to sacrifice a male lamb in his first year, one ewe lamb, one ram, a basket of unleavened bread, unleavened wafers dipped in oil, a grain offering, and a drink offering. It's quite a bit. Oh, and, and, and on top of that, by the way, they had to have their head shaved, and that hair that they shaved with their head had to be put on that sacrifice and burned along with all that on the altar. That was all part of the, the, the conclusion of that vow. Now, I don't know what the going rate was for lambs and rams and bread and oil, but this was not a cheap offering. Think about that. Right? Three animals had to be sacrificed plus two kinds of bread, plus grain, plus oil, olive oil, which they used essentially as a medium of currency in many ways. Very valuable. Still kind of is. You go to the store buying it. It's not cheap. The point here is, this was not a cheap thing. This was a very costly expense. And for four men. This was asking considerable amount of money from Paul to pay for this. Of course, the church there in Jerusalem was impoverished. It's very likely these men didn't have the money to pay for their own sacrifice. So Paul would be ministering to them in that way. But it's also a way for him to demonstrate respect for the Old Testament law and the Jewish customs, isn't it? I mean, by paying for their sacrifice, it's a way of Paul saying, hey, I respect what they're doing. Because I'm going to pay for this. I'm going to foot the bill for this. And the hope, according to verse 24, was that when Paul did that and demonstrated his respect for the law, everyone would know the rumors that they had heard about him were completely false. They would see Paul continuing to live according to the Jewish custom in which he'd been raised. And then we read there in verse 26, we see that that's exactly what Paul prepared to do. To fulfill the, 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 the request here, to enter the temple and offer, along with these men, the rites of purification. Now, I don't want to go any further in this passage because we get further things, there's a dramatic shift here okay, in the very next verse, so we'll save that for after the first of the year or something. But, but, I do have a couple of questions about the situation that I think are really important. And they're going to drive us right back to and really help us to draw out what I think is the essential point of this passage and the theme of my message this morning. I realize I'm almost out of time already. I better hurry up and get to this. Last week, we saw that true fellowship and community are found in submission to the will of God in Christ. Today, I'd like to take that 
idea and move it one step further. I'd like to say this. True fellowship and community are demonstrated by sacrificial love for the sake of Christ. True fellowship and community are demonstrated by sacrificial love for the sake of Christ. Now, before I can get to that conclusion and show you how that comes from the text, a couple of the questions we've got to answer. The first question is this. Was Paul compromising his principles in going against his better judgment by going along with the elders' plan? There are some people who think that. In fact, I, have, I read in my studies this week um, several different commentators' thoughts on this passage. And at least one of the commentators that I have, his book in my office, wrote that he thinks Paul was compromising his principles here, going against his better judgment in doing this. I mean, some people might think that Paul's actions here were motivated by the fear of men. Paul was only doing this because he was afraid of what people would think if he didn't do this. Paul was just going along to get along, right? I mean, we would... Certainly it's not right for us to go against what we believe is right just to please others or avoid a fight, isn't it? But if we see the situation in those terms, if we see this as Paul going against what he believed is to be right, well then, then I think we, we would have to agree that this is not an example to follow. But I don't think that's what's going on here. In fact, I don't think that it violated Paul's conscience to undergo ritual purification upon returning from Gentile lands. I've already told you about that. I don't think it violated his principles to pay for the completion of the Nazarite vow. You say, but that's an Old Testament thing. Yeah, you're right. But remember, the Nazarite vow had nothing to do with the Gospel. It had nothing to do with salvation. Paul was not compromising the Gospel. Nothing that he did here had anything to do with the gospel, at least not directly. Paul always preached that salvation comes by repentance from sin and faith in Christ alone, and he rejected the idea that anyone could please God through human effort. And so he wasn't going through temple purification in order to please God. And he, he wasn't paying for the Nazarite vow in order for him to please God or for these other men to please God. He recognized that the Nazarite vow was a special act of devotion to God. It was a special act of devotion to God in which the person who took the Nazarite vow agreed to abstain from certain activities in their daily life for a period of time so that they could dedicate themselves to prayer and to serving the Lord. And that's what it was for. It was for a person to dedicate themselves especially to devotion to God for a period of time. What's wrong with that? Maybe we would do well to do that from time to time in our own Christian lives. But I don't see any reason why that would be an offense to the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's completely voluntary. There's no reason for us to think that Paul's actions reflect a compromise of the gospel. But I think we can go even further than that. It's not just that Paul didn't compromise the gospel. According to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, these actions that he's taking are consistent with 
His mission and his goal of preaching the gospel. Turn with me there, 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Look at what Paul says here. For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win the more. And to the Jews I became as a Jew, that I might win the Jews. To those who are under the law, as under the law, that I might win those who are under the law. To those who are without the law, as without law, not being without law toward God, but under law toward Christ. That I might win those who are without law. To the weak I became as weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men, that I might by all means save some. Now I, this I do for the gospel's sake, that I may be partaker of it with you. You see, when Paul was traveling in Gentile areas, he lived among the Gentiles without expecting them to make concessions for his Jewish heritage. Paul was willing to do things that a Jew normally wouldn't do so that he could go into those Gentile lands. He would go over to a Gentile's home and eat dinner with them. But a good Jew would never do that. I mean, a Jew who was committed to following the law and keeping the law would would never go into a Gentile's home. What if the Gentile served food that wasn't prepared properly or had some ingredients that he was not allowed to eat? See, that presents all sorts of issues. And Paul said, no, no, I'm not going to worry about it. I'm not even going to ask. I'm just going to sit down and eat whatever they put in front of me. I'm not going to ask about it. So I don't have to come up with a question of my conscience here. I'm just going to go. Why? Because I care. But but Paul... but then what did Paul do when he was with the Jews? Well, then he followed the customs that they were used to. He, he, he adapted to, that, to, their, to their custom, to their heritage. He is now in the midst of a Jewish uh, region in Jerusalem. In the midst of a predominantly Jewish congregation in the church. And so what was he doing? He was willing to live according to their customs. Was Paul going along to get along? Yeah, he was. But, but not in the sense of compromising what he believed. here. Not in the sense of compromising the gospel. Paul was simply exercising his personal liberty. Choosing, when he was here, now he's in Jerusalem, choosing with the Jews to follow their heritage, his own heritage. And to live that way. Why? So that he wouldn't cause an unnecessary offense to them. But even more than that, Paul was motivated by a desire to seek the good of his, uh, for his Christian brothers in Jerusalem. He was motivated to try and foster unity within the church. And so what we see Paul doing, this is what really gets me, we see Paul doing is we see Paul limiting his own liberty for the sake of others whom he served. He chose not to exercise his rights. You see, Paul could have said, listen, you Jews understand, you need to understand something. Being a Jew is nothing. Being a Gentile is nothing. I'm in Christ. I can do whatever I choose. And I'm not going to do this. I'm going to do what I want to do. I'm going to live away free from all of that. Listen, you read the New Testament. We have the right to do that. I have the right to say, you know what? I'm not going to follow that custom or that custom. I'm going to do what, what I think is right and it doesn't matter. And I don't need to follow all of that stuff. I have the right to exercise my own discretion on these things. 
And that's true. Paul could have done that. But he didn't. Instead, he set aside his own rights and the exercise of his rights, his own personal liberty, because he put the, the unity of the church above his own freedom. He considered the unity of the fellowship of brothers and sisters in Christ more important than his own liberty. And so what we see Paul doing here is exercising brotherly love. That's what I think is really going on here. Paul is preferring others in the church ahead of himself. And that's consistent with what he, what he wrote, practicing what he preaches. Romans 12 and verse 10, Paul says, The believers ought to be kindly affectioned toward one another with brotherly love, in honor giving preference to one another. That's what Paul was doing. He was simply saying, you know what, if, if I can put this issue to rest, giving up some of my own liberty, I'll do it. Because I want the church to grow in unity and fellowship. I don't want to be a problem and a point of division and conflict here. That was Paul's mentality. The church is one body in Christ. But we're not called to uniformity. You see, Gentiles are still Gentiles and Jews are still Jews. But in Christ, both are a new man. I already read that earlier. This event in Jerusalem was an illustration of the unity of the faith. It was the brothers from Jerusalem who cared more about the brothers in, I'm sorry, it's the brother, the Gentile brothers who cared more about their Jewish brothers than they cared about themselves. And so they gave of their money. And now Paul is there and, and Paul realizes that if he wants to show love to these brothers, it's going to cost him. He's going to have to give up his own rights, his own liberty. And very literally, it's going to cost him as he pays for the sacrifice of these men. This event is an illustration of the unity of the faith. I'd like for each of us to consider this and just consider this example from Paul. Ask ourselves a couple of questions. The first question is very simple, but it's important. Do I really belong to the fellowship of those who are in Christ Jesus? Do I really belong to this fellowship? If you've never turned from your sin and trusted in Christ alone to save you, then as much as you want to belong to the church, you can't. Because true fellowship and intimacy within the church is exclusively for those who know Jesus Christ. That being said, there's no reason you can't be a part of that unity, be a part of that fellowship, if you'll turn to Jesus Christ and trust Him by faith. You could do that today. But there's a second question as well, and that's for those of you who are already believers. You say, well, I am a believer. I, I, I know Jesus Christ. I belong to the fellowship of Christians because I have that relationship with Christ. Well, think about Paul then. Look at what Paul did here and ask yourself this question. When was the last time I willingly sacrificed anything for the sake of unity and fellowship in this church? When we talk about giving, and we usually think about giving money, and that's certainly one application. Paul gave money here. It cost him financially. 
But the really important thing wasn't the money. It was the fact that Paul was willing to do whatever it was necessary to build up the unity of the church as long as it didn't undermine the gospel. You see, everything else could be sacrificed. Everything else Paul was willing to let go of. The gospel he wouldn't let go of. But everything else was extraneous. All his other preferences, all of his other liberties, all of his other freedoms and rights that he had, he chose not to exercise. Because he valued the unity of the church even more. What are we willing to do? What are you willing to do? So that this church can experience true unity and fellowship as we approach the end of this year. What rights are you willing to give up? What interests and pleasures and freedoms? It probably mean you have to get out of your comfort zone. Build a friendship with someone you don't normally talk to. But when was the last time you gave some of your time just to listen and pray for the needs of someone else in this room? When was the last time you opened your home so that one of your brothers or sisters here could enjoy your hospitality and know that you cared about them? When was the last time that you came to church on Wednesday night to pray with the rest of the body and for the rest of the body? When was the last time you put yourself out there and risked something for the chance to get close to someone else in the church. Well, it's a risk, I understand. But I think if we want to see our church grow in unity, if we want to experience true fellowship, then we're going to have to love sacrificially for the sake of Jesus Christ. Let's close with prayer.